Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, due to various time scheduling and time zones and travel arrangements and God knows what else, uh, we are operating on a skeleton crew. It's just myself and Scott Jones of PhotoGP. Hi, Scott. Hello, David. Hello, everybody in Paddock Pass podcast land. Scott is joining me from not quite the other side, about a third of the, about, what is it, two thirds of the way. Uh, around the world you are still in thailand i think after having been to mategi that's right instead of going home after the japanese grand prix came back to thailand where my family has been for the last month and then from there it's on to sepang yes next weekend so sitting out phillip island uh first time i've missed it since 2012 which uh really hurts frankly because that's my favorite race on the calendar but Sometimes you have to uh, make tough decisions when your family is away in Thailand, which mine is. So sitting out this weekend, we'll watch it on TV and uh, back to work at Sepang. Scott joins me to talk about the uh, Motegi round of MotoGP. Um, a fascinating weekend. Uh, Mark Marcus obviously went into it uh, leading the championship, but he certainly wasn't expecting to uh, actually become champion there. Uh, he was leading Valentino Rossi by 52 points and Jorge Lorenzo by 66 points. And, he, and basically, um, if Rossi finished basically in the points, then uh, the Marcus would have had to wait until Phillip Island. I think they had um, everything uh, prepared for a celebration at Phillip Island, but uh, that, uh, well, it turned out not to be necessary. When you, did, did you see Mark at all during the week? And when you saw him, did you, did he look like a man who was getting ready to celebrate a championship? No, not at all. In fact, in the press conference, he downplayed that and uh, seemed prepared to try to get uh, as many points as he could, looking forward toward, you know, Phillip Island as the first opportunity really to seal the deal. And then, of course, when Rossi claimed pole on Saturday, uh, that was really a, an exciting qualifying session. And suddenly Rossi was in pole position, and then it looked even that much more likely that we were going to be going on to Phillip Island at least before the championship could be decided. Rossi's, well, Rossi's poll was just outstanding. Marquez managed to make a bit of a mess of his second run and he never actually got a clean run at it after having set the fastest time during uh, in, in the first run during qualifying. Um, uh, then, of course, uh, we had, well, basically we had all three of the title candid uh, candidates on the front row with uh, Lorenzo taking uh, third spot. And a little bit of a surprise that um, uh, Dovicioso only ended up fourth because Dovicioso actually looked quite quick all weekend. Yeah, I mean, that front row, I don't think anyone expected the race result that we ended up with. I mean, uh, with all three of the contenders on the on the front row, Certainly it looked like we were going to have, you know, all three of them finish high in the points. We Obviously, we didn't know what order it would be, but I don't think anybody expected the two Yamaha riders to crash out of the race and mark the sail home the way he did. No, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of us were expecting Honda to actually struggle at Mategi because of the nature of the circuit. It's very high speed, uh, a lot of tight corners, um, which... It, 
punishes acceleration, which is where the Honda is still weakest, despite a lot of the progress that they've made with the electronics. Um, but it does have a lot of uh, hard, really hard braking zones where uh, the, the Hondas can then make up the time they lose in the um, uh, in the circuit. It's, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it certainly looked like it was going to be uh, the Yamahas trying to do as much damage to the uh, to, to Marquez while Marquez sort of held off, but it's, but the race didn't play out that way. No, and, and you know, we, ha- we have to talk about, I mean, speaking of the Hondas and the difficulty they have, remember that Danny Pedrosa won here last year. Yeah. So we've got about talk about his tough luck again. Yeah, yeah, at yeah. yeah. I was really hoping for a good result for Danny. You know, I'm an unabashed Pedrosa fan and hoping that after his recent victory, he would follow that momentum up with another win here, at least a good result. And... Gosh darn it! Another crash and another broken collarbone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 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 broken collarbone was actually it sort of plays into the whole the whole story of the weekend, I think, which is that uh, conditions. Uh, I mean, the weather was sunny, and I mean, it was sunny and bright, but cold, right? That's right. Uh, it was cool the whole time. I mean, I I really felt that coming from several weeks in Thailand, where you step outside from the air conditioned house, and it's like being hit with a sauna, a wet, a big wet sponge. Um, as soon as I stepped off the plane in Japan, it was overcast and cool and dry. And coming from California, the Bay Area where I live, it felt fantastic to be back in that weather. Uh, the whole time, the whole week that we were in Japan, it was wonderfully cool and dry. Um, you know, we were sort of expecting bad weather at Matei because it seems like it always seems to rain at least one day during the weekend during that race. We didn't get any water on the track, but um, it was cool, sometimes breezy. And uh, the whole time I was thinking, you know, as I as I said, hoping for a good result for Danny uh, that, you know, that first day I was thinking, boy, it's going to be as cool as it is going to be tough for him to put heat in the tires and, and go as fast as he's capable of. Yeah, exactly. Well, we saw a lot of people um, uh, actually suffering some fairly big crashes, uh, especially in the mornings. And uh, obviously, Danny Pedrosa's was the biggest. Uh, that I think is uh, there. That high side and Eugene Laverty's high side. Um, and Lorenzo's. And, and, yeah, and also Lorenzo's. They they look like proper five hundred high, high sides where the rear uh, starts to go and then it suddenly sort of bites and uh, the 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 rear can uh, the rear suspension compresses and it just flicks people off into the sky. It was uh, um, it was pretty uh, pretty ugly. And of well, of course, it happens to Danny Pedrosa because it always happens to Danny Pedrosa. Um, uh, such a tough break. Uh, and I saw the X-ray of Pedrosa's uh, collarbone, and it looks—it was—it was really, really ugly. It was—it uh, was properly broken. You could see that there was tissue damage around there as well. I think there is um, uh, a small amount of um, uh, uh, ligament damage, but I'm not entirely uh, not entirely sure from what I was reading. Uh, and as you say, I mean, this—it it was going into. Uh, the run of races where Pedrosa has always been strong. He's always been fast at Mategi. He's always been fast at Sepang. Uh, he's always been fast at Valencia. Uh, and to yeah, break your collarbone on the first day is just terrible luck. Um, and, you know, Lorenzo's crash, um, I didn't see it in person, but I was standing right below a big TV screen when it happened. They played the replay of it several times. And uh, it looked to me like he hit his head pretty hard twice when he came back to Earth. You know, he referred to it when he was cleared and came back as my flight. You know, the, yeah. I took 
this morning's flight because uh, he really went sky high. And when he came down, he cracked his head. And I, looking at that on the replay, I thought, well, he's out for the weekend because even if he didn't injure something that would prevent him from riding, um, they're going to be checking him very closely for a concussion because of how he hit his head. Turned out he came back and uh, he bounced right back literally from that crash, which was just another testament of how tough these guys are. Yeah, it, exactly. But I mean, I know there were concerns in the paddock about uh, Lorenzo having suffered a, a concussion, but he was taken off to a local hospital uh, for, for for scans and they couldn't find any uh, signs of a concussion. Uh, it does make you wonder uh, how effective the concussion tests are um uh, but i think this is going to be a recurring i think this is going to be a recurring theme in the in the certainly in the coming years over uh, uh, how concussions affect motorcycle races and 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 what MotoGP can do and most gp world superbikes all of motorcycle racing to uh, try and cope with these things which are don't appear to be being detected yeah you know and another uh Lucky, in a sense, uh, rider was Eugene Laverty because we watched his crash. I mean, that was a huge crash, the way he tumbled. And he came up and it looked like, I, I watched it uh, with a couple of the other journalists, and man, it looked like his leg came up in a really odd angle. Uh, we were really concerned about him having broken his leg. And when we found out that he was okay and going to ride, um, well, I guess he did get he did skip one session. Was that right? He was yep, not yep. cleared to do the next session, but then I guess FP four. He he was out for FP three, but then cleared for FP four. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. He was flown from um, uh, he was from the circuit to he was helicoptered to to a local hospital. Uh, his wife Pippa uh, posted a uh, an amusing little picture on Twitter about it. Uh, uh, fortunately, saying you know you get to, oh look you get to ride in a helicopter, but you can't actually enjoy it because you can't <laughs> look out the window. Um, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean that, that, it, that again, it was one of those massive, really, really big crashes where the, uh, where the, uh, the, the, the tire just wasn't gripping. I spoke to someone from Michelin about it and they said that basically the, the, everyone had been warned that they were taken a little bit by surprise by the temperatures, um, there because it was so much colder than, uh, than they were expecting. And so normally so far this year, you know, the tires which Michelin have bought, they can use both of them, both the hard and the soft. Uh, this time, uh, the hard was just too hard. Temperatures weren't getting up high enough to uh, to be able to uh, get that up to temperature. And because of the limited quantities of tires which riders have, they occasionally they have, they have to take the other tire out, and and they took the higher hard tire out, and that was the tire which was actually biting people, which was actually throwing people mm. uh, uh, throwing people off. So that's certainly I think what happened to Laverty. I think I'm not sure if it happened to. It's certainly what happened. To Danny, uh, Danny Pedrosa. Um, not sure whether uh, uh, Lorenzo was using the hard tire or not, but but it wouldn't surprise me if he if he was. It's, it's, again, especially in the morning in the cold. Yeah, uh, you know, Cal Crutchlow made an interesting comment that I wanted to get your opinion on. He said something about how people were chasing Bridgestone times with the Michelin tire here, racing at Matei the first time on the Michelin tire. Do you think that played into it? Uh, well, yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I mean that's basically um, uh, that's the way that you set up for uh, for uh, for a weekend for a race weekend is um, uh, 
uh, you look at the you look at what you did last year you look at all your data from la from last year and from previous years you look at the times from last year you know roughly what you should be able to do on uh, on Bridgestones um, you try and make a few mental adjustments for the change uh, changing Michelins uh, crew chiefs will try and make some some changes to get the bike uh, to behave a little bit better but you know when riders go out and especially once they're starting to think about um, trying to get through to, to make sure they get through to Q2, then they're going to start pushing a little bit. Uh, and they sort of lapse into old habits, and those old habits, um, well, in this case, those old habits prove to be quite, quite painful, I think. Quite painful, yeah. Where were you watching the race from? Where were you actually shooting the race from? Uh, well... If we can talk about the this from a photographer's perspective for a few minutes, this was my first time at Mategi. Uh, it was fantastic. You know, I only get the opportunity to go to a race for the first time one time, <laughs> right? Uh, I hope to go back there next year, and it will be the second time there, so I won't have that same experience of going to a circuit that I've seen on TV so many times. Being there for the first time is always a really special thing, and um, as I've been doing this for several years, I'm running out of opportunities to do that. But Mategi was one of them and uh, also my first time in Japan. So it was really interesting and uh, an enjoyable experience to be at Mategi for the first time. One of the first things I do from a photographer's perspective is scope out what I'm going to do on Sunday. Uh, because seeing the track on TV is much different from being there in person and trying to compose your strategy for how you're going to tell the story of the race on Sunday. Yeah, and actually just physically get around the track as well, which is, uh, I mean, I find even as a journalist, I uh, sometimes want to uh, go out and actually watch from trackside and you actually have to sort of sit down and think about, hang on, wait a minute, where do I get out? How do I get into pit lane? How do I get onto to service road? Does this service road get onto the other side of the track and all the rest of it? Right. So getting out to watch for a little while and then get back to the media center is, if I may say so, a little less complicated than how you're going to bring all your photo gear out and make the best use of a session to get a variety of pictures and then get back for either get back to the media center to process those pictures or get ready for the next session that you want to shoot. And it turns out that at Mategi, it's um, quite challenging. Uh, they had one photo shuttle for the inside of the track, one for the outside of the track, um, they had a driver in each van, obviously, and then they had one guy who spoke English who sort of bounced back and forth between the two shuttles because <laughs> neither of the shuttle drivers spoke very much English. So the guy who did speak English was very uh, polite, obviously, and uh, very helpful. Um, and so I rode with him a couple of times. And uh, the first session for the first uh, on Friday morning for the Moto3 session, I went out in the shuttle and just wanted to ride around the inside of the track just to see the access points, what the circuit looked like from the service road, because as I said, that's much different from watching it on TV. And it took several tries to communicate, even to the guy who spoke English, why I wasn't getting out of the media shuttle. <laughs> they kept asking me, do you want to get out here? Do you want to get out here? And finally, he understood that, no, I just want to go all the way around the inside and back. And then having seen all my opportunities, I will decide where I want to go and where I want to get out. Um, finally, you know, I made that happen. And then the next morning I did the same thing for the outside of the circuit, but he saw me coming that time. He said, ah, oh, 
San Francisco, because he asked where I was from, and I told him that he says, oh, he's, he's kind of called me Mr. San Francisco. Um, and so it was easier to explain on Saturday that I wanted to do the same thing, take the tour of the outside of the track, and then decide where I was going to go. Uh, uh, qu- um, one question about the about going around sure. the, uh, the the service roads. Does the, do the shuttles actually go through the tunnels or not? Uh, let's see. The To go on the inside, no. The tunnel, the... Shuttle never went under a tunnel for the inside loop. For the outside, yes, it did. It went through twice. It went through both tunnels on the outside right. loop. Um, actually, it went in. It went through a tunnel that isn't that goes under the oval part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To get to the outside, and then went through both of the tunnels around the thing. Yeah. Oh, um, now I take that back. The inside one has to go through the tunnel also yeah yeah um so yeah it does right so it, but i mean that makes things even more complicated about getting around and, and actually spotting out where you uh, where you're going to take your pictures from right uh it does especially when like i said you're there for the first time because um you know when you're going around and, and seeing it from the service road say it again it's much different from watching it on tv much different the perspective of the track is different and you're looking at the angles of the track and what the riders are doing it's much different from uh, seeing what the tv cameras are set up to do so where did you end up during the race so for you know i shoot all three races and i try to use the moto three race and the moto two race as sort of trial runs for what i'm going to do for the moto gp race so i was in a different set of locations for each of the three races um to get back to what I started talking about, the when I first got there, trying to come up with what I'm going to do for the MotoGP race the whole weekend, especially when I'm there at a circuit for the first time, is trying to figure out what I'm going to do for the MotoGP race to tell the story. And it turns out that um, you know you're always looking for a good first lap, first or second corner shot where all the bikes are together, because as we know from watching on TV, often by the end of the first lap, there's so much space between the first rider and the last rider, you've lost the opportunity to get the whole pack in a single shot. So Mategi um, does have a couple opportunities to do that, but they're only from the outside of the circuit. From the inside, by the time you have a chance to do that, uh, they're they've because of those you know U-turns that they make, they go up to one and two and basically make a U-turn. And then they come up to three and four, three and, four and basically make another U-turn. Um, there, you don't really have a good opportunity for that shot from the inside of the track. You can do it from the outside of the track into the first turn, but if you commit to the outside of the circuit and you don't have a scooter, and on these flyaway races, the opportunities to get a scooter is much more limited than at the European rounds. The European rounds, there are scooters all over the place. It's much easier to blag one for a session or get a ride on one with somebody who has one. Um, At the Japanese round, there were very few scooters to be had, and most of them were small scooters that could only carry one person. So I knew from the first day that it was going to be really unlikely that I was going to be able to get a scooter ride. I was going to be relying on walking and the photo shuttle. And once you're on the outside of the circuit with one shuttle going around, you're pretty much walking. So I decided that I was not going to go to the outside of the circuit. I was going to sacrifice that shot of them coming from the finish line down to turn one. 
because if I wanted that shot, I was going to be on the outside of the circuit and really be at the mercy of when that shuttle was going to be coming around. And when I saw it, would I be able to get in? Because they weren't big vans or anything. There were only four seats in the mm. thing. So it, if it was full and it went around, then I was dead in the water until it came around again. So I decided to commit to the inside of the circuit for the MoGP race. And I spent more time on the grid as usual and then shot the start of the race from the pit wall and got a picture that I quite liked because it had, uh, you know, um, Motegi is similar to Austria and Mugello in that there are forests and hills around the circuit. Motegi is a huge facility. I was really surprised by how big it is. Uh, you know, Japan, everything is compact. The cars are tiny and everything's little. Uh, the roads are really narrow and uh, then you get to Motegi, and it's this sprawling, enormous piece of land that has a racetrack in it. But it's not just the racetrack. It's acres and acres of forest around. There's a hotel there. The Honda Museum is there. And as you drive in, um, I made a little video for my Patreon people to see what it's like to come into the circuit and, and get there from the road. Um, it's, it's enormous. And so when you're there... Um, shooting the race too. You've got a lot of land to cover, but you also have um, some opportunities to get really nice forest tree covered hills in the background. And as you're looking at the grid from the pit wall, there's a really nice hill in the background that's covered with trees. So I decided to use that as my background, shoot the grid, uh, and then just go to the pit wall, shoot the start of the race there, get the bikes coming off the line, and then just stay on the inside of the track, walk down to the inside of turns one and two, um, shoot as much as I could there, and then go back to pit lane and shoot the end of the race from pit lane, basically get some team reactions, trying to get the bikes coming across the finish line. That means that you weren't at um, what turns nine and ten where I think uh, Rossi and Lorenzo crashed, uh, but you did see uh, Hector Barbara and I think Jack Miller crash, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair trade, really. <laughs> I missed Rossi and Lorenzo, <laughs> but I got Jack Miller and Hector Barbara. So, you know, that's about a 50 50 proposition. Yeah, but, got pictures of both of those, missed the two Yamaha riders. So I, I planned that one. Just right. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it was it was uh, all really the same uh, the same reason. It was just front ends uh, front ends letting go, right? Yeah, the uh, Jack came in to turn one, uh, tucked the front, rolled into the gravel, got up with that fairly typical look of disgust that riders get from that type <laughs> of crash, stalked through the gravel, and was done. Uh, Hector Barbara, his first time on the factory Ducati, trying to make the most of it. Had a similar crash. He got through turn one and tucked it as going into turn two, which is that big U-turn. Um, he did not give up. Uh, he rolled into the gravel and ran over to try to get the Ducati going again, um, which he did with the help of a lot of marshals. And one thing that struck me about that instance was that, you know, this, this whole thing about the Ducati winglets, and even though they're outlawed for 2017, Ducati continues to develop them, make them more sophisticated. They have more bits on them. They get bigger. They get wider. They get much more complicated from the ones that we saw at the beginning of the season, which were pretty simple. Um, but, as, uh, but Hector's crash, he went over and he knocked the main winglet section, the upper section, off of the bike and it came off as a unit and was sitting in the gravel. When the marshals came over to help 
collect the bike, they wanted to remove it from the circuit, but he wouldn't let them. You know, he was emphatically telling them to push him because he wanted to get going again. One of the marshals picked up the winglet section and was ready to carry it off because it was, you know, debris on the in the gravel there where more riders might come in. And Hector made him drop it and join the other marshals to help push the bike out of the gravel and get him going again. But at one point, you know, the marshal, I got this picture of this marshal picking the thing up and he's not really looking at what he's doing. He's looking at the riders who are still coming through the turn. And I think pretty clear he's terrified because he's in this really vulnerable position, yep. right? I mean, when you're on the outside of the turn where someone has just crashed, yeah. it's the mo- you it- feel like everyone who comes around is going to crash and come right toward you are. But he's there picking up this winglet that is now junk on the side of the circuit. Um, and I don't know, that just struck me as like a part of the whole winglet discussion that isn't really, that hasn't really been talked about before. Like there, there are other parts of, of the bike that can fall off and be trouble for the marshals to clear from the track. Anyway, the, the uh, guy dropped it and they got him going and he managed to start the Ducati and ride off and he just spewed tons of gravel on the track as he went off. But he did rejoin the race and I th- think he finished the race. He made it all the way to the end, I think. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, he did make it all the way to the end. It didn't score any points, though. He only, only ended up 17th. But it's actually oh, it's actually well. quite an interesting point about the uh, uh, about the winglets, because uh, the winglets which Ducati bought this, uh, especially to this one, were incredibly complicated. They were sprouting all sorts of little... It was starting to get very, very F1-esque, I felt. Um, but you have to wonder how much um, whether someone from Ducati went around later on and picked that uh, uh, picked that winglet up to make sure that it didn't fall into the wrong hands, if you see uh, if you see what I mean, because that's that's their intellectual property, and they don't want uh, they don't want the other uh, the other manufacturers uh, to, to to have it. But um, uh, I know that uh, some there have been some discussions about the winglets. If they fall off, you could end up with sort of shards of carbon fiber uh, lying on the. Uh, lying on the track, which can be dangerous if uh, uh, you know, which could p- potentially do damage to a tire if uh, if you to ride over it. But then uh, the same could be said for a for a fairing, of course. But uh, you know, I've been sort of on the fence as a photographer. I kind of like them because they're so interesting to photograph and interesting to watch them change from race to race. That's one of the great thing about prototype motorcycles, right, is they're different from weekend to weekend. And many of the changes that happen between races are underneath the fairing. You can't see them. But this is one that's right out in plain sight for everyone to watch the development happen. Uh, So from that perspective, I kind of like seeing what the next crazy idea is going to be and also seeing the different approaches that that the factories take because the Suzuki approach is different from the Honda approach, which is different from the Aprilia approach. And everyone's different from what Ducati is doing. They're, you know, really much more complicated than anybody else's design. So I find that very interesting to compare those different things and, and to take pictures of it. But for other reasons, like the idea of a marshal out there trying to do his job and clear a piece of junk that has fallen off a motorcycle at risk of being crashed into by, you know, if someone else had crashed and he's out there unprotected, then I think that alone is um, a reason to say, 
you know, we've made the right decision to not have these in 2017. Yeah, exactly. And also at the uh, Mategi meeting of the Grand Prix Commission, they uh, talked about um, next year they will be homologating fairings. And so you will only be able to have one fairing update per season per rider. And so that's going to make it perhaps even less interesting for photographers because um, uh, it's going to make it even less interesting for photographers because it's going to mean that, you know, people are going to have the same fairing all year long. I suppose that's the the, the case for um, the satellite riders as uh, as we are now anyway. But that's also going to be the case for the uh, uh, for the factory riders as well with, the, with those gone. Well, less interesting perhaps, but the other side of the coin is less work. You take a picture at the beginning of the season, you got the picture of the fairing. You don't have to get out there at 8 a.m. and wander down pit lane and look for which fairings have been updated. Yeah, exactly. You just have to know that they've brought a new one for uh, uh, for, for each race. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so get back to the race. It was, it turned, I mean, what was the race, did the race feel exciting from the from track side? It did at first when, you know, which is often the case when... The race is in that introductory period and the running order is being established, then it's interesting. Once it sort of settles in and you start to see gaps between the riders, then it gets a bit dull watching it from trackside. You know, as I've said before, watching a race at trackside is like reading every 10th page of a novel, right? You just see, you miss a lot of things that are going on unless you happen to be by a TV screen and you can see those missing pages that you don't see with your own eyes. Um, for this race, I wasn't at, on the inside of turns one and two, I wasn't by a TV screen for much of the time. So I missed a lot of the action. Um, and I was relying on other people who were sort of coming by to tell me what happened. Somebody told me that Rossi had crashed. Somebody told me that Lorenzo had crashed. Um, and so for that part, you're just sort of watching the rider order as they come around and then suddenly somebody isn't there and you're not sure if they've run wide and will reappear four or five riders back or if they're if they crashed and you're just not going to see them again. Uh, so for me, it seemed like it was um, rather a dull race once uh, Rossi had crashed out. There was just sort of the same order going around and I didn't have much sense of suspense of, you know, is there going to be some interesting change in the running order that's going to make for a compelling story to try to tell with pictures and then once lorenzo was gone then it just seemed like okay are they then i was trying to remember the point situation with both of them out if marquez wins have his team brought the t-shirts and the special helmet (laughs) (laughs) i had that thought like they really thought and then i flashed back to a uh, memorandum that we got in the media center from the dorna media officer saying that if there is a rider celebration after the race do not enter the track with the marshals only the marshals and the dorna photographers are allowed to go on the track if there is a rider celebration and so at the time we got that i was not using my foresight to think okay rossi's going to crash lorenzo's going to crash marquez (laughs) is going to clinch the championship what they're talking about is marquez doing his title celebration I thought that they were talking about Rossi's on pole. He's going to, he's got a good chance to win. And there's going to be a big Rossi celebration, as there often is. And the Valentino Rossi fan club is going to have a thing. And I thought, okay, well, if the Dorna photographers are the only ones to, allowed to go out there, 
Uh, what is Gigi Soldano, Rossi's photographer, not allowed to go out on the track to shoot Rossi's celebration as he usually does? I thought that was like the most interesting possible complication of that instruction from, you know, the Dorna Brass about don't go out on the track. I did not see the Marquez situation happening. No, well, well, you may not have, but uh, the Mark Marquez's team um, uh, did because they did bring the t-shirts and the helmet. Um, uh, going back to the race, because I mean, also you know, Marquez. Uh, it's funny you say you you didn't know the you weren't uh, you weren't sure about the point situation. Mark Marquez was. Um, he knew that uh, because after uh, Rossi crashed. Uh, he had to. He said afterwards he had to sort of like sit there and think about. Hang on a minute. How many how many points do I need? And where what happens? Where does Lorenzo have to uh, have to finish? Um, and, and he was sort of like trying to process that and then just you know make sure that he that he held the lead. Uh, and then after Lorenzo crashed, then it. it, it it, it, well, he basically he went to pieces for uh, for a couple of laps because you look at his lap times and all of a sudden he's lapping six, seven tenths a lap slower just because he's taken completely by surprise by uh, by the entire situation. Um, I, I thought that was a funny that was a funny combination of facts. There, his saying that he had he went to pieces when he realized what the situation was and his lap times dropped by five or six tenths of a second. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, a normal person falls to pieces in a situation like that. Yeah. Their lap times might fall by five or ten <laughs> seconds. Right. But him falling apart five, ten, six uh, tenths yeah. of a second is him completely losing his concentration and just not knowing which lever does what. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I mean. Uh, I think it also speaks of uh, how much they're doing things, how much of it is, is muscle memory and um, the, uh, understanding, uh, being able to do this almost automatically uh, without thinking. And then all of a sudden when he starts to think, then things start to go wrong for him and he's making sort of mistakes in in every other corner. So, um, um, But to go back to the race for a start, I mean, the watching it on or watching it on TV, it was certainly... And it was just, it was exciting from the start. Uh, it was interesting to see Marquez get to the front quite quickly. Um, looked like Lorenzo. Lorenzo tried to make a break, but um, he just you know couldn't hold Rossi, couldn't hold uh, Marquez, um, uh, couldn't hold Marquez first of all. And once Marquez went past, then that uh, got past Lorenzo and put Lorenzo between uh, him and Rossi. I think that sort of. Um, that put some pressure on Rossi because he knew that uh, it, he came to Mategi trying to score points, trying to get back points back from Marquez. Um, but uh, he stood to lose a lot more points if Lorenzo had finished uh, finished ahead of him. And once he got past Lorenzo, then he seemed to push on a little bit. And the nature of the Michelins, which is that you don't. Uh, you don't get much warning when the when the front goes. You get you get the tiniest bit of warning, and then it's gone. Um, the 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 front just sort of uh, seems seems to let go. And uh, Rossi also said that he was basically in between two tires. He used the medium, but the medium was a little bit too hard, uh, and the soft was way too soft for him. Um, Lorenzo said that they should have chosen the soft, but they uh, uh, but they went with, but they went with the medium. So there was a little bit, and again with the temperatures, it it gets a little it gets that little bit more sensitive, and so. Rossi 
tried to push on um, and ended up just going a little bit too far and ending up in the uh, ending up in the gravel. Um, that left Lorenzo to chase Marcus, but by that time, I mean Marcus. Marcus, Marcus was significantly quicker than. Uh, than Lorenzo was opening up gap quite quickly. Uh, and Lorenzo was sort of hanging on until uh, Dovicioso and Vignales started to arrive from behind. Um, and Dovicioso, well, they, they were starting to get close very, very quickly. And then it just seemed like Lorenzo was getting a little bit concerned and made exactly the same mistake as Rossi basically just went a little bit too uh, pushed a little bit too hard and, and lost the front although Dovicioso seemed to be convinced that um, Lorenzo had actually touched the white line just before he crashed and the you know while he was braking and the, and the white lines are uh, despite the fact they're made with special paint the, the combination of the of the Michelin rubber with the with the white lines doesn't seem to well the, the Michelin does seem to like the white lines and so they they seem to be crashing slightly more often than than previously but then that was that was basically I thought, yeah I was I, I'm glad you brought that up because I I was confused by that comment that when I read it Davizioso saying like he was following Lorenzo how could he see that Lorenzo's front tire touched the paint uh, uh, presumably he's judging it by uh, he's judging it based on the line that Lorenzo is taking uh, I mean these mm. these guys know that just by following each other around I mean they know the bikes they know the track they know the track intimately um, they know when someone goes through uh, uh, goes through a corner they know what bump the rider in front of them is going to hit, you know, even even as the uh, as the cor- as the rider enters the corner. So it's um, uh, it really is a very very intimate knowledge that they have of these uh, of these circuits. It's very tactile knowledge as well. Um, so presumably, uh, Dovicioso was convinced that th- that's the line that you t- that when you take that line when you hit the white line and that's where that's when you fall off. So um, mm. uh, whether he did or not, I don't think uh, Lorenzo said much about it, but. Um, uh, Certainly, it was the same. It was just the same thing. Just you know, the front washing out without any warning. Uh, that left us with an interesting podium, anyway, with Dovicioso and Vinales on the podium. Uh, also, two Suzukis with uh, uh, Alessio Spargaro coming in fourth, just behind uh, Vinales. But most of all, I think it was Marquez's reaction to the win. That was what really that was, I really, really enjoyed seeing that because it was such a pure and natural and truly spontaneous reaction. Yeah, you wrote about that very nicely, I thought, about how when you expect something, you have some degree of mental preparation for it you're waiting for it to happen and when it does it just seems to some extent the natural occurrence that you've been waiting for but in this case being as unexpected as it was because of the two Yamaha crashes uh, we really saw just an honest very emotional response to winning championship ahead of schedule uh, that just threw the whole I mean it was lucky that they had the t-shirts and the helmet ready but it was really clear that Mark hadn't taken the same preparation for that result that the team had. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, that's the other thing. The, the team is always prepared on the flyaways because uh, 
it, it's not as if they get the T-shirts printed uh, at, at at a local shop in in Tokyo <laughs> or whatever, or, or pop into Melbourne to get a bunch printed up. You know, they they have all of these T-shirts and everything, and the helmet and everything, uh, it, all lined up, ready to go. And they go in boxes, and they go in the containers, which are shipped around the world by Dawn to all the flyaways. Uh, and so, as far as organisationally is concerned. It doesn't really matter which of the races you get. You get crowned champion. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the stuff is already a go. It's just a crack. It's just a question of where, whether you've actually already cracked, put the boxes, uh, taken the box out of the container, and stuck it in the corner of the garage just in case. Um, so it's possible that the that Marquez's guys had a moment where they realized. That they had to go find those boxes and unpack the shirts yeah, in a hurry because yeah, both of the Yamahas had crashed. Yeah, out. I, I reckon. I reckon that when uh, when Lorenzo crashed out, there were probably a couple of people scurrying out of the back of the Repsol Honda garage, <laughs> rushing into the container, going, "Now, where the bloody hell did we put those boxes?" <laughs> So yes, it was all actually probably probably more when uh, when Rossi um, uh, probably more when uh, when Rossi crashed out because it was I mean uh, Lorenzo was training by I think sixty six points uh, and so he I mean and he was going backwards and so things would have been going um, uh, going for some time uh, they would have uh, you know they would have had plenty of uh, well. Lorenzo was leading by 66 points um, or was trailing by 66 points and so um, uh, the, the, the and going backwards with Dovisios and Vinales chasing and so it was really fairly clear that um, he was going to that there was a good chance he could have got caught uh, uh, and if he'd have been caught by both uh, caught and passed by Dovisios and Vinales um, then it would have been uh, then Lorenzo or Marquez would have been champion but um, when I mean it was Rossi was closest Rossi, Rossi was trailing by 52 points and so uh, uh, any decent points uh, finishing the points would have been good enough to delay the championship until Phillip Island for him so um, but uh, I mean w- 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 did you see any of the celebrations any of Marquez's celebration? Uh, I missed seeing with my own eyes whatever happened out on track but because i was close to the pit lane i was back in pit lane when he came in smoked the rear tire uh celebrated with his team in park fair may and then uh, continued that up on the on the podium it was that was another th- and you know it, it was another thing was good to see to see him actually because i think he actually managed to do do to uh, do two burnouts he did one by a tra- the side of the track and then he did another one in in park Ferme. um yeah and and it was nice you know that i mean the they may have been planning or hoping to wrap it up at Phillip Island, but the fact that he was able to do it at Mategi with all the Honda people, I mean, the pit lane was full of Honda people from the CEO all the way down to who knows what. There were loads and loads of guys. Actually, from all the Japanese teams, there were many unfamiliar faces in team gear with event passes from Honda, from Yamaha, from Suzuki. Um, but there were loads of Honda people there. So the fact that he was able to do it, shall we say, ahead of schedule at Honda's track 
with all those Honda people there uh, must have been pretty special for the factory. Yeah, I mean, you could you could sort of like see that it was, you certainly see that it was special for him and definitely for for Honda. I mean, Yamaha have won there a little too often for Honda's liking. Uh, Yamaha also managed to win the Suzuka 8 hours at another track owned by Honda. So this would have been very, very sweet revenge for them indeed, I think. Right, so... Obviously, Mark Marquez, three championships in four years, a remarkable achievement. And I think this was a championship which we really weren't expecting to see him actually pick up. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, the, he's really, we've really seen him change as a writer since 2013, haven't we? I mean, that first season was remarkable for many reasons. Uh, each of the last four seasons watching his career has been remarkable in its own way. Um, but to me, this season has been the one that really makes it look like he has quite a few more championships in his future. He was really able to settle down and think about the championship as the prize rather than, you know, when he gets out on track, he changes. He has that little ant scheme for his graphic of, you know, he's mellow when he's not racing and then he gets warmed up and then he turns bright red when he's racing because he's so intense about that. And we've seen that be a good metaphor for how he is on track. Um, but this season, he seemed to be able to turn that back a little bit and be really thoughtful and aware he was racing of the goal is not to go out there and battle for the win at all costs at the expense of the championship as he did last season this season he was willing to take a lower place in the day's final tally in order to score the points that would deliver the championship at the end of the season yeah exactly that's it i mean the change in maturity is amazing, and I definitely think the crashes, especially the crashes at the beginning of, uh, of last year, uh, the crash at Mugello, the crash at Barcelona um, in 2015, those were real turning points for Marquez in terms of understanding that if he'd have been a little bit more patient, um, he would have been would have still been in the in the, in the title in the championship fight all the way down to the end of the season, um, uh, and he seemed to realise that he was much uh, calmer. He was much more willing. I, I think the most remarkable thing to me this year is the fact that he finished sort of fourth and fifth a couple of times, um, which if you look at his his I. I had his podium percentage, I can't remember what it is, it's something, it's something ridiculous, it's 60, 70, uh, uh, 70 odd percent, I think. Um, he tends to, when he, when he's, um, when he's racing, he tends to win, uh, finish up on the podium, uh, either winning or on the podium. And um, uh, this year, there were a couple of races where he wasn't on the podium and he seemed perfectly willing to accept that because what he was doing in 2015 was not be willing to accept that he was going to finish up off the podium or not win a race and and throwing it up the road uh, as a result of it so yeah it was it was a, it was a, a remarkable transformation and I think you're right I think we're going to see a lot more championships from him I mean he's still I guess you could argue that Lorenzo on his best day is certainly as fast on his best day, maybe faster than Marquez is. But those two guys are the fastest guys out there over the course of the season, I would say. I mean, if Neil would hear, he would back up the statistics to say if I'm right or wrong <laughs> about that. But 
Uh, well, Valentina Rossi know, is second in the championship, so you could. Uh, um, you, there is a case to be made for a certain Mr. Rossi. Well, I would see. I would say about that that he is the most mature rider, not just in terms of years, but in terms of racing experience, and has the best understanding of what I was just talking about. Mark having learned and dis- and shown us this season that Rossi understands better than anybody else that to win the championship, I mean, having won as many as he does, consistency of scoring points is what really makes the difference. Um, so I, I think of, uh, of, of Lorenzo and Marquez as being the, the flat-out fastest guys out there. And when you take that element of your writing style and mix in the type of maturity and awareness of the points adding up race after race, I think that's that's what is going to win more more and more titles for Marquez. Yeah, uh, well, the one thing which uh, Valentino Rossi didn't show this year was maturity and, and consistency because he fell off three times. Uh, obviously, he had the DNF at, uh, he had the engine blow up at uh, Mugello, which was completely, um, you know, no fault of, he had nothing to do with that. That was, that was basically Yamaha, uh, Yamaha's engineers decided to uh, uh, crank it up for a couple of hundred extra revs and then ended up paying the, paying the price. Um, but uh, Rossi crashed at uh, Austin, where he got a little bit flustered, tried to go a little bit too hard, hit a bump, took the wrong cor- uh, the wrong line through the corner, hit a bump, uh, lost the front. Uh, he crashed while leading at um, Assen in the absolute soaking rain in the in the second part of that race. Uh, again, uh, the well, a lot of people crashed that race because the tire was so hard, but. Um, they definitely, um, he, he definitely sort of, you know, just pushed too early, seizing, seeing a chance to get some points back on Marquez. Uh, and then he, he, again, just pushing too hard, he loses the front. So the, 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 the uh, it seems to me that this was, this was a year, it's almost uh, the, that Rossi's and Marquez's championship years have been sort of, uh, uh, the reversed their, their situation has been reversed from 2015 when 2015 Rossi was doing it all on consistency and uh, Marquez was either winning or binning uh, and this year we see you know Marquez willing to accept fourth or fifth uh, place finishes just for some points and ending up winning a championship because of it well maybe that is I mean just speculating here but maybe that is what has to some degree made the difference with Rossi Understanding. I mean, I was just saying that he has the most experience and the the deepest understanding about championships being won by consistently scoring points. But when he, perhaps when he's noticed that Marquez has figured that out as well, and that Marquez is innately a little bit, at least, faster than he is, that has forced Rossi to push that much harder and say, well, I can't stay with what my experience has taught me. I have to continue to score as high as I can weekend after weekend in order to beat Marquez I have to push you know I just have to push harder I would agree with that I think he's they've definitely he's definitely felt the pressure to actually push harder I think well Rossi Lorenzo um, uh, even Pedrosa is um, uh, they are pushing Rossi to 
just incredible heights because of their performance. And um, what's remarkable is that Rossi and uh, that, that Rossi at, at his age, at 37 years of age, has actually responded and is still so incredibly uh, competitive. Is is managing to compete. Where if you look, for example, at Loris Caparossi at uh, at his age, Caparossi was completely done by that time. So um, again, a remarkable achievement. Agreed, and I think that's one of the parts of Valentino Rossi's story that continues to add interest um, to the racing fan. Like, you know, you've you've spoken about how when Lorenzo Stoner Pedrosa came into MotoGP, Rossi had been on top for some time, and those riders knew that in order to win, they were going to have to beat Valentino Rossi. And that raised the level of MotoGP riding for this new crop of racers who really wanted to win, right? And so since then, we've also had Mark Marquez and we have Maverick Vinales coming up to that level. And there's been kind of an interesting flip in that perspective is now it's not people have to beat Valentino Rossi in order to win. Valentino's almost on the other side of the equation now. In order to win a title, he has to beat Mark Marquez, Lorenzo. He has to beat the people that he's created. He's created these monsters yep. in the sense that by riding at such a high level, he raised the level that the other guys have to ride at to win. And now he's fighting to raise himself above that level. That, that's true. And it's also extremely unusual for a rider to be able to do that. I mean, generally, once uh, once you get past, uh, once uh, some cheeky youngster comes along uh, who's figured out how to beat you uh, you d don't have the flexibility to actually change and, and, and adapt and beat him and the truly remarkable thing about Rossi is that he actually manages to find that he manages to find a way he's managed to, to transform himself change himself change his styles and actually still be uh, competitive so um, yeah we shall uh, we shall have to see I mean they get another chance next year the new Honda is supposed to be um, uh, a, a lot. It's supposed to have a well. The 2017 Honda is supposed to have a much more manageable engine. There's talk of the, the firing order being changed. The 2017 Yamaha M1 is supposed to be better in terms of its chassis. It'll break a little bit better. Uh, presumably, it'll also handle the Michelins a little bit better. So it's going to be interesting to see next year what. Uh, uh, um, Rossi can do to try and beat Marquez what Vinales can do on the Yamaha and of course what Lorenzo can do on the Ducati uh, yeah that brings up a point that I've been meaning to ask you about uh, Nakasuga was on a wildcard ride on a bike that to me looking at it in pit lane looked like it had some interesting differences between the bikes that Rossi and Lorenzo were on did you hear anything about his bike being different in any way or in any way representative of what next year's Yamaha was going to be like? The official line was that it was basically identical to the 2016 bikes, um, but like all official lines, um, they it bears very little resemblance to the truth. Um, it's likely, I think it had a different swing arm, uh, or at least I heard, I think one of the Yamaha people talks about um, uh, Nakasuga's bike having a new swing arm probably had a new swing arm it probably had a new sh uh, 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 maybe a new frame but the, the changes would be so small 
that it would actually be very difficult to see. A lot of the changes, in, especially in chassis stiffness, um, uh, they happen inside the beams. The dimensions of the beams don't change very much. The locations of uh, various mountain pines don't change all that much. Uh, what happens is that you work with different wall thicknesses of, uh, of aluminium at various points in the frame, and that's what, uh, that's what makes the difference in, in the behaviour. Uh, so what what kind of differences could you see then? What was what were the differences you were noticing? Well, the thing that caught my eye was the swing arm. There were some at least superficial differences between the swing arm he was using and the ones on uh, the factory Yamahas. And so I'll have to go back to the pictures and look and see if there are things that seem like they might be significant. The, the, the swing arm is, is one place where there is obviously going to be uh, some changes because the swing arm uh, helps with a lot with uh, suspension and bike handling when the, when, the, when the bike is completely leaned over because obviously the suspension isn't working in the correct direction. Uh, so they have to build in a little bit of flex into that, into that swing arm to actually help it cope over the bumps. Um, the swing arm, uh, obviously, has a lot to do with helping the rear tire be in contact with the uh, with the ground, uh, which again has an impact on the front tire. Um, so yeah, I mean the the swing arm is obviously something which they will be working on. Uh, that, that's going to be a big change. Um, so uh, we shall see. Right, uh, I think that's enough for Mategi. Let's. Going forward to Phillip Island, you, you said you're not going to go to the Phillip Island for the first time since, what, 2012? You must be, well, you must be gutted not to be going, except you've probably seen the weather forecast. Uh, you know, I, I, that's another bell that I ring over and over again. I don't really mind whatever the weather is, uh, especially if I'm in Australia at Phillip Island. That's my favorite round of the season. I, I hope to go there every year as long as I live, whether I'm working as a MoGP photographer or not. I love that race. I love the setting. Um, and I really like shooting pictures in a variety of weather. Lots of the guys in the media center complain if it isn't sunny and warm. I really like shooting pictures in the rain. I just put on my rain gear and I like the variety, the different things that you see, the reflection of the bikes, the spray of the water off the tires. I find that really interesting and I don't mind getting wet to get pictures like that. I don't really... Uh, I'm not really happy if it's freezing cold, <laughs> which it often is at Phillip Island. You know, they say you get all four seasons in one day down there, and that's only a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, many days I've been at Phillip Island, I've been dressed up, uh, warm all the warm clothing that I brought with me in the morning, stripped down to T-shirt and shorts in the middle of the day, um, had a shower in the afternoon, and then back completely bundled up at the end of the day. Uh, it's just... Uh, what you accept when you go to the southern tip of Australia. So I'm not uh, too worried about uh, the weather when I'm there, um, but I am extremely disappointed not to be at that race, especially since Nikki Hayden is going to be back on uh, a Repsol Honda. I'm really, really sorry. In fact, when I found that out, uh, my wife and I went into sort of a quick travel <laughs> agency <laughs> mode to see if I could somehow get from Thailand to Phillip Island in like the next five hours. Can I get from here to Bangkok and on a plane and to Phillip Island in time to uh, shoot the race? And we just couldn't work out how to do it. So here I am still there. But um, I'm uh, really hoping that he has a good a good experience being back on the Repsol Honda team. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, obviously he was back at Aragon um, uh, replacing Jack Miller. Uh, it was um, it was a little bit difficult for him, I think. 
Um, but um, Phillip Island is a track. It's much more of a riders' track. You're, you're much more, much less worried of. Um, uh, about the bike, how the bike is behaving. It's all uh, third gear corners, and so you're not having to control the acceleration so much. It's uh, just the, the the laws of physics are preventing the rear wheel spinning and the wheelie, which which the Honda is suffering. Um, he, he's in with Pedrosa's crew. That's going to help. Um, it's really... Yeah, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what he can be capable of doing. I don't think he's going to be winner number nine this year. Uh, well, unless <laughs> unless the we- unless the weather does something weird, which uh, which well, as we said, might just happen. Um, that what I'm interested to see is Maverick Vinales. Maverick Vinales has been saying basically since uh, uh, after Silverstone, he said, you know, I wasn't expecting to win here. Um, I was expecting to win in in Phillip Island. So I think. Uh, it looks like he's going to. I mean, that is. He's definitely penciled in Filipina as the place to win, and the Suzuki's much better, much faster this year. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can do. And then, of course, last year we had one of the best MotoGP races of, well, probably since the 2006 season. So there's a lot of it. There's a lot for it to live up to. Yeah, well, that cold weather. I mean, the forecast for cold weather is only going to help the. Suzuki, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the the, the cold weather does uh, the the Suzuki. Uh, they've complained a lot about a lack of grip when it gets too warm. The rear starts to spin uh, when it's war when it's cold. They don't have that problem so much. Uh, but I also have to say that they've actually fixed a lot of that problem. I think at Misano they found uh, they did a test at Valencia, and that made a uh, the, that made quite a bit of difference. And um, and they've been pretty good. Uh, you you also saw at uh, at Mategi just just how good the Suzuki Suzuki's were uh, both morning and afternoon, even when it was reasonably warm. So uh, we shall see. Uh, and then Mark Marcus said that you know now that he's wrapped up the championship, he can just go, he doesn't have to worry about uh, about being safe and consistent anymore. He can just go all out for the win. So that makes him uh, a hard man to beat. Uh, Lorenzo goes brilliantly at Phillip Island. Uh, Valentino Rossi, I think, has won here five times, if I remember correctly, in the past. Uh, again, very, very strong. It's a track which suits the uh, uh, suits the Yamaha. So we have all the makings of a uh, of a really great uh, uh, of a really great race. That's right, because now that the championship is gone. Rossi and Lorenzo both want to finish second in the championship. So there's sort of a battle within the championship for that position. Yeah, and normally nobody cares about second place, but this is Valentino Rossi versus Jorge Lorenzo, and they really, really, really don't like each other. Uh, there's a lot of bad blood there, and they're going to do absolutely everything they can to try and... Uh, try and win so or to try and take second or well not even take seconds to finish ahead of the other that's the most important i think if it, if this was for 14th and 15th place the battle would be just as fierce as uh, as it is for uh, uh what is it for second and third yeah so we have that to possibly to look forward to for the remaining three races in the season that second and third battle could come down to valencia and be uh, just a, a sort of a end of season complication for the season story uh, yeah exactly exactly and uh, uh, as if the as if Yamaha's management didn't have enough headaches as it was uh, <laughs> uh, there could be a little bit more but anyway that's it for now thank you very much um, uh, give uh, Paddock Pass podcast regards to your family and um, uh, enjoy Thailand and you can switch the uh, uh, air conditioning back on again now
Bless you, sir. <laughs> Bless you. It's about 150 degrees here, and we're sitting here sweating. Right. <laughs> Hello, David. Hello, everybody in Paddock Pass podcast land. Um, Scott, even, well, even then, the, uh, well, fucking cockwank. Um, uh, Judson, you might need to go edit that out.